great to be here with you all. As Greg mentioned, I'm not only a member here, but associate professor of theology at Trinity Christian College. And sometimes people ask me what I do, what we professors do during the summer. And while we do a little vacationing, we have some fun that the summer schedule, the flexibility of the summer schedule allows. Primarily what we do, I'm looking at my colleague here, Tom, good to have you here. Uh, primarily what we do during the summer is, is research and writing. So for the past couple of months, I've just been secluded all alone in my office, in my study. And while I really love that dedicated time, during the summer, I miss teaching because I miss the interaction. I miss the engagement. I miss being able to share the riches of Scripture with people. So it's a real joy to be here with you this morning, to be able to engage and to be able to open Scripture together to see what God is saying to us this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, feel free to do that. We're going to be reading from Mark 5, verse 21. For those of you who don't, we're going to have the words on the screen. We here at Elmhurst CRC are continuing a series called Seaside? Lakeside? Lakeside. I had the, the joy, the privilege of just a couple months ago reading this passage and teaching on it on the seaside in Israel on the Sea of Galilee with 41 Trinity students. It was just a rich, beautiful experience. I'm excited to be able to do that in a slightly different context this morning. Mark 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothes because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering." Now, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. 
And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Again, if you have your Bibles with you, feel free to, to leave them open. We're going to be returning to the text throughout the, the message, uh, and we'll continue to put those texts up on the screen. <clears throat> when, I was, when I was a boy, family meetings were a big deal. Uh, I'm the youngest of four, and so my parents would gather all four of us onto one section of the sofa sectional so that they could look right at all four of us. And then they would tell us why they had called the meeting. Usually it was because us kids had been misbehaving, but sometimes it was just to, to share some news with us. But a regular part of family meetings was my mom's storytelling. But mom didn't tell stories for the sake of enjoyment. No, nobody enjoyed mom's stories. Um, <laughs> mom told stories in order to get a point across. There was always a lesson to be learned. So if mom wanted to tell us kids that we needed to help out more around the house, then she would tell a story about all of the things that she had to do helping around the house when she was young. Or if mom wanted to explain why her and dad had chosen to treat us kids in a certain way, then, then she would tell a story about a time from her childhood when she felt like she had been treated unjustly, and so her and dad weren't going to do the same thing with us. Mom told stories to get a point across. There was a lesson to be learned. But since as kids we could sometimes be a little dull or purposefully misconstrue the point of the story, mom would usually finish by saying something like, so I'm telling you this because, or that's why I'm asking you to do this. Sometimes, when we read the Gospel of Mark, we forget that Mark is kind of like my mom. He's telling a story, a story that really happened, but he's telling this story to a specific group of people in order to preach to them about who Jesus is. Along with telling the stories from Jesus' life, Mark wants to communicate the impact of these stories for the life of his congregation. He wants to impact their lives in a dynamic way. He wants things to change for them. But the thing about Mark is he is so busy telling the story, so eager that he's always immediately Jesus did this, and then immediately he was doing that, and right away he went off and did this. He doesn't pause in the story to say, so I'm telling you this because he is too busy telling the story and moving to its climax in the Passion Week. But because Mark doesn't slow down to explain the lessons he is teaching, we sometimes miss how Mark is choosing his words and stories very carefully to preach to us here today. So this morning what I want to do is look at, think about how Mark is preaching to us in these two stories, with the story of the bleeding woman placed right in the middle of the story of Jairus' daughter, so that there is an inner story and an outer story. And Mark does this because he wants the, the flavor of the outer story to add zest to the inner story and the flavor of the inner story to permeate the outer. And as we look at how Mark is preaching in this passage, I want us to ask three questions of the text. Three questions. Question number one, who is Mark talking about? Who is Mark talking about? Now, on a very basic level, Mark is talking about a woman who has been subject to bleeding and about Jairus' daughter. 
But when Mark tells these stories, he's viewing these women as representatives of Israel. Now, some of you may be a little skeptical at this point, so I'm going to invite you to look back with me at the text. We may not see it right away, but Mark is choosing his words and his stories very carefully because, like my mom, he's trying to get a point across, okay? So at the beginning of our passage, Mark places Jesus in Jewish territory. In the passage just before ours, we see that Jesus goes over to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, and while he's over there, he casts out some demons, And here at the beginning of our passage, Jesus returns to Jewish territory, to the Jewish side of the sea. And the moment that he does that, he encounters a synagogue leader. Now, a synagogue leader would have been the administrator of the local Jewish synagogue. And this man, Jairus, throws himself at the feet of Jesus in a very undignified manner, pleading for his daughter. Then in verse 25, Jesus encounters a woman who has been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 12 years, that's significant. Mark chooses to include that detail in order to lift this woman up as a representative of Israel. 12 years, 12 tribes. Now again, some of you may be skeptical. Turn with me to verse 42. Mark doesn't want to leave any doubters out there. In verse 42, we read this, Immediately, The girl stood up and began to walk around. Oh, and by the way, she was 12 years old. Mark is including these details so that the audience would hear them and connect these two women together and see that they are images, pictures of Israel. But in this passage, Israel has a problem. She is unclean. According to the laws of Leviticus, there are three kinds of people who are considered unclean and therefore could not be part of society. The first kind of person we're quite familiar with, a leper. But the second kind of person is a bleeding woman, or as the Hebrew term so descriptively calls her, an oozer. And the third kind of person that was considered unclean was a, a dead person. So a bleeding woman and a dead girl they were unclean and sources of defilement for anyone that they came into contact with. But not only is Israel unclean, but she despairs. The oozer, the the bleeding woman, she has been afflicted for 12 years. And because this was a disease that, that made her unclean, it wasn't a disease that she could simply endure. No, she had been cast out of the community. See, their culture wasn't like ours. If this woman were our friend or our daughter, we would take care of her. We would help her. But in this culture, you can't do that because caring for a woman in this condition would mean that you too would be unclean. And so nobody wanted anything to do with her. She couldn't go to church. She couldn't go to the marketplace. She couldn't be touched or loved by anyone. And that's why she turned to the doctors, but the doctors were hacks at best and con artists at worst. They prescribed cures that only made things worse, and along the way, she racked up an exorbitant medical bill. She despairs, desiring relief so badly as to break every rule in the book in order to come to Jesus. She wasn't allowed to be around people in crowds, but she despairs. And this Jairus guy is in the same boat. 
He's heard of this rabble-rouser named Jesus, and it would be a wise career move for him to ignore Jesus. Consorting with such a religious deviant would likely raise questions about Jairus' leadership. But his daughter is dying. And there's no greater despair than to watch a son or a daughter wilt and die before your very eyes. And so Jairus comes and throws himself at the feet of Jesus, despairing for his daughter. In this passage, Mark presents us with two people who are despairing. And they are two very different people. And Mark does this to include everyone in the passage. On the one hand, we have Jairus, a community leader. And on the other hand, we have a nameless woman. The one is a religious pillar, the other cast out of the religious community because she is impure. The one rich, the other impoverished by doctor bills. Mark is presenting Israel. All Israel, from the greatest to the least, encounters Jesus in this passage, and Israel is unclean, and she is despairing. Now, before we move on to see what becomes of Israel, let's pause for a moment to remember that we, the church, are Israel. I'm not speaking ethnically or nationally. I'm speaking theologically and spiritually. The Apostle Paul says that the church is the Israel of God. We are the true Israel, the new covenant people. So as we hear Mark's message for Israel, let us hear a message for us here today. So who is Mark talking about? He is talking about despairing and unclean Israel, which includes us. This leads us to question number two. What does Jesus do for Israel? What does Jesus do for Israel? Again, there's a a pretty basic answer to this question. Jesus heals these two women who represent Israel. The woman who has been subject to bleeding has the bleeding stop, and Jairus' daughter who has died is raised from the dead. Jesus undoes the damage of sin and suffering for these two women. And since they represent Israel, Mark is communicating to his audience that Jesus undoes the damage of sin and suffering for all the people of Israel. Jesus is the Lord of life, even for the hurting, searching people of Israel. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but sometimes when I read miracle stories in the Gospels, I get preoccupied with questions. Questions like, why didn't Jesus heal more people? Have you ever wondered that? There had to have been others who were unclean and cast out of their communities. Why didn't Jesus heal all of them? And certainly there were people dying and family members despairing. But Jesus raised even fewer people from the dead. Why not more? And in many ways, my questioning of why Jesus didn't heal more people back then is a way that I question why Jesus doesn't heal more people today. Could you use some healing in your life? I know I could. Do you have friends or family members who could use some healing in their lives? I know I do. Do you ever look around your church, your neighborhood, your city, and think about all of the people who need some healing in their lives? 
I mean, there are people who are despairing and crying out for that healing, and from time to time it comes, but why not more? Why not others? Why not Why not me? But my questions miss the point of why Mark tells us these stories and why Jesus performed these miracles. So why does Jesus perform these miracles? Hang with me for a bit. We're going to come back and answer that question, okay? Did you notice? Did you notice when we were reading the passage that the bleeding woman thought that if she touched Jesus' cloak, she would be healed? You know, sometimes as 21st century readers, we've become so familiar with these passages, we've heard these stories so many times, that, that we aren't struck by these details. Why? Have you ever asked that? Why did she think this was going to work? I mean, first of all, why does she think Jesus can heal her? But then secondly, why does she think that by just touching his cloak, this is going to work? I mean, wouldn't Jesus need to know what's going on? Wouldn't he need to say something? Wouldn't he need to perform some sort of ritual? Why does she think that if she just touches his cloak, or as Matthew and Luke put it, the edge of his cloak, that she'll be healed? The answer to that question may be in the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and in the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi 4 verse 1 begins like this, surely the day is coming. Now, when the prophets would speak about the day, they're talking about the day of the Lord, the day when God would intervene in human history and he would bring the kingdom of God and he would set all things right. And Malachi was speaking, was prophesying to the people when Israel had already gone into exile and they had come back. But even though they were back, they weren't really back because they were still ruled by a foreign power. They were still oppressed by a foreign power. They hadn't fully been restored. And the promises that the prophets had talk about, talked about, they hadn't been realized yet. And so when the prophets would speak about the day of the Lord, it included a host of things that revolved around two main realities. First, the restoration of Israel. And second, the defeat and, and destruction of their enemies, all of those who would stand in the way of the kingdom of God. And if those two things would happen, then the result would be shalom, peace, well-being. So back to our passage, Malachi. Malachi 4, verse 1. We read this. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. So that right there is images related to the second thing we just talked about, the defeat of God's enemies, the defeat of all those who would stand in the way of God's kingdom. So what about the first part? What about the restoration of Israel? Let's keep reading. Before, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. So here we have an image of that restoration of Israel, right? The healing that would come for those who revere God's name. And then we get the image of well-being and shalom, the calves that frolic. 
Now, that word right there, wings, that word means extremities, and so its particular meaning is going to depend on the context. So, for instance, the sun, right? The S-U-N, it talked about the sun of righteousness. What's the extremities of the sun? It's sun rays, sunbeams. And so some translations actually translate Malachi 4 verse 2 saying uh, that the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, this word is used to describe birds. And what's the extremities of birds? It's their wings, which is why it's translated in this instance as healing in his wings. And still elsewhere, this word is used to describe a garment or a cloak. In that instance, the extremities are going to be the edges or the corners. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells the people to put tassels at the edges or extremities of their prayer shawls. Tassels that look something like this, sometimes called tzitzit. Now, Malachi. This passage in Malachi, at the very end of the Old Testament, it started to be read as, an es- as a messianic promise. They started to read it as an expectation of a Messiah. So the son of righteousness was considered to be a person, a Messiah, who would bring the kingdom of God on the day of the Lord. And so when you read the son of righteousness as a person, then the healing in its wings, the extremities, is connected to the, the garment. So that it became an, a messianic expectation that a Messiah would rise who would have healing in the edges of his cloak, in the tzitzit of his prayer shawl. Quick sidebar, okay? Have you ever wondered about the Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? These lines, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, Hail the Son of Righteousness, Light and life to all he brings, Risen with healing in his wings. That's Malachi 4 verse 2. That's a messianic prophetic expectation. Okay, back to the text. Back to Mark 5, back to the bleeding woman. So when the bleeding woman comes to Jesus and she reaches out to touch his cloak, why does she do that? Why does she think that she will be healed in this way? Because she thinks he's the Messiah. She believes that he is bringing the kingdom of God, that this is the day of the Lord. And is he? Yes, absolutely yes. The prophet Isaiah, when he spoke about the day of the Lord, he spoke about it in this way. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. See, Jesus was bringing a revolution He was bringing the kingdom of God, and part of bringing the kingdom was bringing God's healing power. But Jesus wasn't a one-man medical emergency sinner. That's not what his healings were about. That's not why he did them. The healings were signs of the kingdom, the kingdom in which the real healing, the true healing of humanity would happen at his death and resurrection. That's what this text points to. Jesus said to the dead girl, rise. And she rose just as Jesus Jesus would rise on the third day. 
Mark's readers would hear the words arise and stand up, and they would immediately grasp the implication that the power by which Jesus raised this girl from the dead was the same power by which God would later raise Jesus from the dead. On the way to Jesus' final and ultimate healing of humanity at the resurrection, people already saw death and the power of death driven back when Jesus would heal them of their illnesses. Jesus' healing of the bleeding woman and raising the dead girl are signs, signs of the salvation that Jesus was bringing to Israel. Look with me at verse 23. Verse 23. Jairus comes to Jesus and he pleads with him. He says, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. The word healed here is the same word used throughout the New Testament and is translated as saved. Jairus wants his daughter to be saved from her illness. That's its most basic meaning in this context. But Mark uses this word because he wants his readers, when they hear Jairus' request for healing, to also hear Israel asking for salvation. The salvation that is only possible through the, de- through the deliverance of God. The salvation that is only possible in the kingdom of God. Salvation is what Israel wanted. It is what they were waiting for. And Mark is telling them, here it is, right here in Jesus Christ. Look with me now at verse 28. We're going to see the same thing happen. The bleeding woman comes up behind Jesus and touches his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And again, that's the word saved. And one more time, verse 34, Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has, you're starting to see it, saved you. Jesus' healing of the bleeding woman and raising of Jairus' daughter are signs of the salvation that Jesus was offering Israel. And in this passage, that salvation includes at least three things. First, it includes purity. For both the bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter, there was the threat that their impurity would defile Jesus. But it wasn't the impurity of Israel that defiled Jesus. Rather, it was the holiness of Jesus that restored Israel to a condition of purity and cleanliness. Second, salvation makes one whole or complete. After healing the bleeding woman, Jesus sends her away with the words, Go in peace. Jesus invites her to depart in peace, to depart in the shalom associated with the new kingdom, to depart into the fullness of well-being. And third, salvation in this passage includes being brought into the family of God. The bleeding woman had been cast out of her community. She had no family. Because of her condition, she couldn't bear children, and so she either had never been married or she had been divorced. She had no family, no kids, no husband. But Jesus welcomed her 
and he called her daughter. It's as though he said to her, if you've no family, come be part of mine. So what does Jesus do for Israel? He brings the salvation of the kingdom of God by purifying her, by making her whole, and by bringing her into his family. We ask now a final question. What does Mark think Israel's response should be? What does Mark think Israel's response should be? The proper response is faith. Look with me one more time in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to look a couple of chapters earlier at Mark 1, verse 15. Mark 1, verse 15. These are the first words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel to introduce his ministry, to let people know what he's doing. He says this, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe. When you see the signs of the kingdom, believe. When you see the sick being healed and the dead being raised, believe. Have faith. For Mark, Jairus and the bleeding woman represent those in Israel who come to faith. And they serve as examples for all of Israel and for all the church to see the signs of the kingdom and believe. But not all will have faith. The mourners at Jairus' house did not believe. Rather, they scoffed at Jesus. And while we may scorn those mourners, there are times when we too struggle to believe. Maybe you've experienced too much human suffering and despair to believe. In the midst of our suffering, faith sometimes seems childish, overly optimistic, or detached from reality. Maybe you feel too impure to believe that your sinful, ugly actions disqualify you from the possibility of wholeness and relationship with God. Maybe death, which is so black, so ugly, so final, has come too close to your life so that you no longer believe in a kingdom of life. Or maybe you just grew restless with faith. And you've been filling your life so full of other things that keep you from a complete reliance on God. In response to all of these things that may have gotten in the way of our faith, Mark says to us here this morning, look at these signs of the kingdom and believe. Have faith. And faith isn't a simple feeling. No, it's a deep trust and assurance that something is true. It's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. If you've filled your life too full of other things, trust that when life crowds in with its pressures, there is still room to reach out and to touch Jesus. If you feel too impure to come face to face with Jesus, know that Jesus can make you pure. Sneak up behind him and touch him and see that his purity is contagious. With Jesus, there is the opportunity to receive purity over and over. 
If you've lost faith because you've experienced too much suffering or despair, trust like Jairus and the bleeding woman that Jesus is the only one who can bring freedom from your suffering, the only one who can bring light into the darkness, the only one who can bring peace to your soul and wholeness to your spirit. And when he brings his kingdom in completeness and fullness, there will be no more suffering. If death causes too much fear to believe, know that death is not the end. It is not our ultimate destiny. Instead, there is resurrection. And on that day, there will be no more death. People of God, Mark has been preaching to us here this morning. We are God's chosen people, his dearly loved children. But we're also sick, near to death, and desperate. And Jesus offers us the power of the kingdom of God, the power of salvation to purify, to make us whole, and to draw us into this community of faith. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can listen to these words from our Lord. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning and we thank and praise you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation that he brings, for purity, for wholeness, for hope. Lord, we have seen the signs of the kingdom of God and we cannot help but respond in faith. We trust that you will bring your kingdom to completion and that you will bring us into the fullness of your salvation. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.